when you're setting up a new fund, you're building a huge foundation uh, with uh, huge thick walls. Uh, it's like a house, right? Big, big house, huge thick walls, a uh, lot of wiring inside, a lot of stuff, and you're building one floor. And that foundation can take 10 floors. So, so you need to invest a lot in the foundation. It needs to be rock solid, otherwise you won't get the first floor. Tom Evan Mortensen is an experienced founder, tech CEO, investor, and board member. His latest project, VC firm Sandwater, aims to have a fresh new take on venture investing. In this episode, we cover what made Tom Evan pursue business and investing, important lessons from being a CEO in a challenging market conditions, how he wants to scale Sandwater going forward, and his best advice for people pursuing a career in business. Let's head over to our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Their first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. Their second mission is to create a completely new way for companies to reach their investors and vice versa. The app is available for both iOS and Android, and stay tuned for additional features in the future. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more. They prioritize requested companies, which you can easily do in the app. They have a lot more in store for the back half of the year, so make sure to follow them on Twitter at Quarter App. So check out Quarter, spelled Q-U-A-R-T. TR, and you can find the links in the description. All opinions expressed by Christopher Warname or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Warname. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Warname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Well, I'm from the West Coast in Norway, just uh, grew up in Bergen, uh, but then fairly quickly moved outside. So I'm what you call in Norway a stril, which is sort of a, a farmer boy that we used to, had to sort of row into the city to sell the fish in the old days. Uh, so I grew up in a small place, um, played soccer, you know, was a bit of a shy guy. I was always the smallest in my class for many, many years. And that's something maybe happened during high school when I um, uh, started uh, more interested in the artistics. I, 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 I danced in the school uh, sort of uh, play and I did all kinds of things. And I thought I was going to be an engineer. Uh, but then eventually I ended up after my military service to to go the business route. So I can't explain why I ended up there, but I met a very interesting guy during my, my military service. And I guess he was the sort of pivot for that. And life is full of those things, you know, as you know later. But who, who was that guy then and what did he bring to you? Uh, he was just, I don't know, I, 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 I've always been very interested in the technical things, uh, you know, uh, all nitty gritty stuff. Uh, but he just brought this sort of sense of commercial pragmatism in some shape or form so it got me curious so but i still i'm an engineer inside but i'm a business guy outside uh, on the out uh, on the outside so so uh, but it's, it's strange but I, i've been thinking about that what would have happened if i went my original with my original plan so that's i think everybody knows when you sort of 
have lived for a while that, that life is full of those small pivot points. Definitely. But, but you ended up going to, to America for studies, right? So how many years did you stay there and what do you think were the most valuable lessons you got from that experience? Well, well, first I did a couple of years in Norway, but then I always had this sort of desire to maybe do something a little bit outside the box and, and going to the US, this is some years ago, I'm, I'm afraid to say it, it's, it's been a while already, but but um, it was a little bit of a step outside, but um, I studied there for three years in LA and I did my business studies. And I think the sort of coming out, this is back in 88 to 91, it's coming away from everything and, and then just getting, meeting so many new people. And already then, this school was full of uh, international students. I mean, probably 30, 40% Asians, a lot of Americans, of course, but also Europeans. So I think it just sort of got me very interested in the sort of whole international space. And it just happened to be that that's what I've been working with ever since. And also my dad growing up, he was a sea captain. So ever since I was a small boy, we always been traveling around. So I think that sort of exploration part, maybe is part of the old uh, Western Norway Viking yep. thing that is in there somewhere, but but that, that was probably the best experience. And, and then also understanding that um, you need to deal with all these kind of people and need to adopt. And, and I guess some of those things have, have helped me later. In this period in LA, what are sort of the biggest topics at the business scene in a specific industry? Like where are we in the cycle? What did well, you get exposure to? Uh, this is um, 88. It's still uh, sort of uh, early days of tech. Um, I remember I bought my first Macintosh at that time, which was like, you can't get, couldn't get hold of it in Norway even. So, so you got the first sort of, uh, I don't know, feeling of, of the new tech industry. Um, but LA was really also very much of a, a sort of melting pot. Um, maybe not so much known for the business as such, but the whole, you know, industry of, of uh, entertainment, uh, crazy people, you know, everything is kind of extreme. And I think maybe that was more the inspiration, if anything, that that uh, you you got a lot of exposure to to a very very different world than 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 Norway at the time. Definitely. So after that period, you decided to go back to Norway. What were your ambitions at that time? Did you have a clear plan and trajectory, or was it about okay, seeing what opportunities that comes along and let's take it from there? I mean. First, uh, I think to be realistic, in '91, uh, Norway's economy was on the way down, uh, and I quickly realized that the, the only re- sort of serious target I could have is to get a job. Um, and I started as a school teacher, actually, because uh, uh, at the time I, I needed some income. So while I was sort of applying for a real job in a way, I, I, I took a six-month stint as a school teacher, and I loved it. It's and I, I even had sort of a uh, students there that were sort of graduating and and got a lot of responsibility very early and and I really ever since I always uh, remind myself that I maybe in a second life I should be a teacher um, but I, I guess you know you can sort of transform that that sort of uh, uh, you know into other scenes uh, settings as well uh, but what happened was um, I applied a few things and then I got lucky I, I um, ended up connecting with some people in North Hydro and uh, 500 people applied for the job. I never thought I would get it. And again, you know, this sort of thing where 
a small little uh, coincidence made me connect with one of the guys that was hiring and eventually I got the job and and that was really you know again one of those things I could never plan it I got a job as a trader in in a commodity uh, team with Nosk Hydro International and it actually sort of ended up being already then thinking of what, what can I ever do in life that is better than this so so and and I, I guess that's been ever since that there's always a new thing and you really get excited and and then you think that you're on top of the world, but there's always something else out there, right? But that was really my first um, job experience, which hit a lot of the things that I guess I was um, I was sort of preparing in life to be to become, and and that that's been sort of dealing with the international business scene. Interesting. So, but at the trading job, did you sort of also get then an, an a passion for trading side, etc.? Because you also in the next job ended up running a, f- a firm focused on derivatives, right? So, how was that finance? Did did it grow as a passion more and more? Or did you always have a keen interest on it? Well, you know, to be honest, I've never been a finance guy, <laughs> uh, so I understand it and I can deal with it. But. But I think the the dealing and wheeling part, the the dealing with people, uh, the sort of very volatile daily uh, job, uh, dealing with uh, taking a lot of uh, decisions without perfect information, having to uh, deal under time pressure, all those things, more generic stuff, was what uh, made uh, me tick. And 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 we dealt with gas and oil and shipping and so on. When I uh, uh, then ended up in starting being part of starting Imrex, which was actually my first um, uh, time as a you know found, a founder title wasn't made up at that time so you didn't you just started a company in a way right so but then uh, being part of that startup uh, really was similar things I could use some of my experience from the previous job I knew the industry I knew the people but then most of all it was again taking another risk because I left a fairly stable job with with a solid um, employer my dad in fact he's probably more of the older type he when i came home and said i was i was going to leave noskider which at the time was maybe one of the most serious uh, employers in norway and and leave to start a, to do a startup he he just couldn't believe it i mean that was for him unthinkable but but i, I think i just wanted to get into the next thing and 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 then that was another sort of risky venture but but it turned out very well and and I think that has sort of given me lessons that I'm still applying today in, in my job as a, as a venture uh, sort of uh, investor. Yeah, how deep was that, you know, learning curve running and starting a new company? Because it comes with risk, as you say. So, Well, this was, uh, again, I, I have this tendency of picking uh, bad timing when I <laughs> do new things. This was just when dot-com was sort of uh, coming down and it was like 2000, 2001. And and uh, we got the money. We thought we had a great plan. We had a good team, and then the macro just turned against us. And and dot com uh, went south, and everybody pulled away. I, I have this sort of picture in my head uh, that I'm running on on a big beach, and there's a huge wave coming behind me. Uh, it's going to crush on on the beach, and it's all about getting on dry land. And we got on dry land, but we were very wet. On our backs and we almost drowned but we didn't drown and and a couple of years it was tough then we turned we again got a pivot that was partly luck and partly um i guess stamina got new money and two years later we went took that company public and 
and we ended up with a sort of 120 million US um, market cap in the end. So I guess, you know, for me, you know, I couldn't have planned that. I, I couldn't have sort of, uh, and that's, but you just have to live in the moment and, and sort of play your cards and, 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 and be willing to pivot when you need to pivot. And then it's, it's all about the execution and stamina because the plan was good. It wasn't brilliant. Uh, but I think the execution in the end turned out to be very good. And that's why we saved it and didn't sort of uh, um, ended up as part of history. Um, but of course, that for me personally uh, has given a lot of that uh, confidence. And it also kickstart my, my, my next sort of venture was into uh, more working with private equity. Exactly. Uh, so so Imrex is, is always sort of a very, very important part of my my sort of uh, uh, my my, if you will, history in, in terms of uh, showing also that you can, if you believe enough and work hard enough, you can actually uh, get through quite a lot of uh, hardship. Yeah. Interesting. So what were the experiences that led you on to the to the, to the investment route? Because we're obviously going to talk about your new fund today, of course, but sure. how, how did it all start the investment? Uh, well, you know, I'm 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 still old enough that I have another little uh, intermesso <laughs> before I get there. So, uh, and that was after you know I I, I worked with this startup. I, I ran across uh, a gentleman who has uh, sort of uh, I worked with quite a lot uh, after that, and that's Rainer Indal, who is now the the founder of Summa, and he was then partner in Altor, and they needed um, a CEO for a tech company they had acquired, and. Uh, Again, you know, this is one of those things. We were stock listed with Emirex. We were top of the world. It was so much fun. I never had a better job. And then I found a way to 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 argue for myself that this is the time to 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 change. So then I ended up being a CEO for a company called SPT Group that was owned by Outdoor, and they were on a sort of a scaling run. Uh, and we worked with that and. And as I signed on to and started, then the financial crisis hit. So again, you know, a little bit of that um, headwind. Um, but we came through and it, it ended up being very, very good uh, scale up. And, and eventually we sold that company to Schlumberger in 2012. And that was my first experience of working with professional owners like private equity and seeing from behind and inside how they work, how they think. And and uh, and then I spent a year and a half in Schlumberger, uh, managing well, part of managing the software division there. But but when I was finished with my what do you call it mandatory work, then I wanted to get back into and that's why I when I started to hook up with uh, some of the other funds. And so you're talking maybe eight to nine years since I, I really started working 100% with the the interface between operations and and investments. But before Sandwater become a fund, there is a, a long prehistory there, right? There are some investments that are summed together, etc. What is sort of the history behind it? Well, I mean, you know, since uh, we're sort of doing the whole chronology right. here, I mean, fast forwarding uh, after working a little bit with EQT and then ending up with Summa, we we ended up and we being a, a bunch of, I would say, individuals that, that had different roles in in business and, and, and private equity, we ended up investing in, in a few early stage companies. And uh, that was interesting since I was one of the more operational uh, guys on the team. Um, I ended up spending more time and then I joined Summa and Summa had at the time a very early 
purpose of sort of investing into you know the the right thematics but of course they were investing at a much later stage so but by through that we got a lot of opportunities deal flow that obviously wasn't ready for a summa but was more prone for venture so we ended up uh, investing in a number of these companies so kind of my idea of sandwater started maybe four or five years ago thinking that well you can do this full time. I mean, this is fun and it's it's a lot of opportunity. And I'm seeing more and more that uh, the thematics that Summa was driving at could equally work well for venture. So maybe two and a half years ago, we were thinking that, you know, we can do this full time. So I left Summa. We took that uh, portfolio of companies with us and created a strategy around that and, and build a new Sandwater Fund, which we are now... Uh, in full sort of uh, operation with, build that on top. So that's sort of the legacy part. And that was the sort of lead into to what then has become Soundwater. Maybe we should go through the different sectors because it's a clear, you know, thematic approach here. So do you want to go through them? The resource efficiency, health and climate, why exactly those three sectors? Yeah. And, and again, you know, I'm not shy to say that, you know, you need to steal with pride and uh, <laughs> and uh, and obviously being inspired uh, a bit by Summa, but also seeing what else was happening. Uh, and also the interest and the experience I, I had myself, but also people that ended up becoming part of Soundwater. I think the whole, uh, we call it regenerate, which is the area uh, of thematics that, that talks about waste to value, agri-tech, uh, new energies, and, and those themes are so much, you know, addressing some of the really key challenges. And also it, 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 it locks into what Norway and, and the network we have are very strong. And so I think there are some natural sort of uh, reasons why these themes can come out of this area, Norway and, Nor and Nordics and also our own networks, and also where we believe that it has some anti-fragility in terms of how the markets are moving now. And, and that is also part of it. So that's a very important theme for us. We have a second theme that we call Vitalize, which has to do with healthcare, vitalizing health and education. And we have some investments there. And the third one is, is sort of a improving tech, uh, tech to improve people's lives. And, and also very often uh, into sort of uh, democratizing uh, processes or, or taking down barriers or, or prop tech and other energy efficiency type of technology. So, so we've, it's, it's still wide. It's not like it's super, uh, but it's, it's still, but it's more thematic. So it's not just pure generalist. Uh, and we see a lot of uh, excitement and, and interest in those themes. And it resonates well with our investors, uh, LPs, but also with companies that we're dealing with. But it's so interesting just to touch on the thing you mentioned before that you got sort of this idea from maybe from working with Summa because you saw so many great companies in these areas, but it weren't, you know, fitting in the right scale and size, right? So mm. that seems like a very good start if you're setting up a fund to really know that there are enough opportunities here that these will actually work because you need a deal flow, right, to be attractive. Yeah, and, and, and some of the setup around, I mean, there's so many ways you can you can try to differentiate yourself in, 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 in venture or in most of the things, right? And, and what, what we were thinking is what can we do that adds value and, and creates a little bit of an edge uh, into this sort of uh, market of, of, uh, of sort of the Nordics uh, venture market. And of course, Libido has to do with believing in certain important themes so that we bring also to the table knowledge and, 
and passion and conviction, those things to those teams. Of course, it is very much to do with the people involved, but also the network and where we think we can source and the credibility where you might have, but also uh, understanding how we can leverage the network with, uh, with reaching into other both investors and companies and people that, that could be relevant for this. And, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to play on, uh, uh, use our network, use our, our background and so on. The other one is also, of course, understanding what are the opportunities or trying to understand what are the future opportunities and, and, uh, and how can we understand the business model that, that hopefully is required to make this happen. So, uh, and I think if you look at fundraising for a new fund, you know, as a first time fund, you always get, you know, met by this. Okay, but your first time you haven't delivered anything. What's so special with you? Why should we put the money on you? And and then everybody expects, you know, good team, you know, good strategy. But you need to sort of uh, make yourself credible. And I think, you know, having that focus on on those assets that we I just described, the, the the capabilities combined with the network and also the 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 uh, strategy that people believe can be an attractive for uh, for companies that that's kind of where we we're trying to um, to make an edge and and so far it's sort of proved um, good you touched upon fundraising which is super interesting because it also you know sometimes relies on timing etc which you also have mentioned sometimes now so what, what was the general, you know, conclusion after doing a big fundraising? What are the key principles? Um, I think timing uh, and that's <laughs> that's half luck and half uh, and half uh, sort of hopefully uh, conscious work. But but um, I, I think obviously having the core and, and understanding what the different LPs would challenge you on. And it's kind of like. I, I describe it a bit like when when you're setting up a new fund, you're 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 building a huge foundation uh, with uh, huge thick walls. Uh, it's like a house, right? Big big house, huge thick walls, a uh, lot of wiring inside, a lot of stuff, and you're building one floor. And that foundation can take ten floors. So so you need to invest a lot in the foundation. It needs to be rock solid, otherwise you won't get the first floor. So, so that is a lot, Strat uh, structure, uh, uh, compliance, all these things. And that takes a lot of time to invest in. And then you need to have a, like we discussed already, a strategy that, that sort of hits somebody. Uh, and then after that, it's just stamina, stamina, lots of meetings. And, and eventually, you need to also be good at playing the momentum so that you need to have somebody who steps up first so that the others will follow. And, and our sort of uh, advantage, we had very good supporters. Um, we had initial supporters that, that also is in investors in, in the fund that are very credible people. Uh, I mentioned Rainier already. Chris and Sinding from EQT is one of our investors. And Anders Miesen from EQT. So there's a, there's a number of people that, that bring certain credibility. And after that, then you need to um, uh, work very intensely to build... Uh, a core of investors that other people want to follow. So we've done uh, fundraising now in two rounds. Uh, first, we we uh, we took in 220 million, and now we're at uh, close to 700 million. But we still have another sort of round to go. Uh, so it takes a year, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not. I can't say I uh, this is my favorite, but uh, I know it's part of the deal. 
and you need to do it and you need to it's very important to get the right uh, investors because you're doing this for long term so if we're going to make the 10 floors on this thing we are need to have investors that want to be with us so you need to invest to um, in, in in making the right followers it's like in any startup it's very important who you get around the table when you when you take in money so it's not different get the right people on we, board. we are a startup ourselves i mean in many ways we're doing the same thing it's just in a different industry 100 percent so if we're going to talk a bit about the uh, the investment philosophy, uh, how would you say that you typically evaluate companies? Do you source everything by yourself or do companies come to you? How does that sourcing project pro- process look like? Um, I think, you know, we, we all want to become very proactive uh, around our themes. I think so far, since we are relatively new and we also are still in the fundraising mode, a lot of the transactions or opportunities are coming through our network, which is also part of the thesis that the network will provide. Because in a way, a lot of people that we work with will often refer deals to us. So, And, and we are very um, very conscious that we always want to co-invest. So we are. this is not um, a, a competitive... It's competitive, but it's not as... Uh, in, it's competitive in a different way than if you look at private equity later stage. Because in... Whoa, in venture, uh, you always cooperate with people. So, and since we are a minority investor, we will always have other people that we will co-bind when we invest. So that opens up for a lot of collaboration. Uh, and, and so the deal flow comes a lot through uh, network, uh, other partic- uh, cooperating funds, uh, people we know. But of course, over time, we will also work very much proactively uh, looking at companies in certain sectors that we want to be and try to be early on the curve. Um, when we when we look at companies coming in, we we have sort of four initial criteria because, to be honest, sometimes you you, you can get a lot of opportunities, but you need to be very good at uh, sourcing out the right opportunities that fits your mandate, but also that is good for the company. And and we need to look at you know does it have does it have the sort of uh, uh, does, does it have the quality of the rig? We, we call it rig or the team, the setup. I mean, is that something that has the potential? And, 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 and is it quality uh, all around? That's number one. It needs to be something that you can really believe in. Can it go 10 times? Can this really scale? I mean, is the business model there, market? So is it a, is it a, is it a sort of hugely scalable business? Thirdly, um, uh, does it have the impact criteria that we are looking for? Because we we do have a very strong impact agenda in Sandwater. So we need to understand what does that impact mean? And it's not it's not being a good citizen. I mean, that also, but primarily we're looking for what does the business model itself create of impact if they succeed? That's kind of the core of what we're looking at. So we need to have a check on that. And also can Sandwater contribute in a good way? And, and also, in a way, it's a selfish way, do we want to work with these uh, people? Do we want to work with this, uh, this sort of topic? If those four uh, checks, then, then we're on the route to, to looking at it more closely. But, but then, of course, there's so many other things that you need to go through. But it's, it's very important to, to have a, a strong filter, uh, be clear on, on who you can work with and, and, and who should probably find somebody else. And then you need to sort of um, spend time. But but obviously, there's very, very few of those we f- talk to. Also, those we select to move on with, there's very few we end up investing in. Yeah. 
What, what's your favorite questions to ask founders? Is it about truly understanding what they want? Because you, like you said, many of the criteria can be there, but if it's not like suitable with their visions and their ideas, it's not going to be a very fruitful cooperation probably. Yeah, and, and on that topic, of course, uh, not as a, as a saying on that topic, obviously you want to understand what are they looking for? What do they need of help? Where do they look for inspiration or, or, or assistance or advice? Advice. And the reason why that is an important question is also to understand how open are they? What are they really looking for? Are they, are they open and, and sort of uh, uh, for their own weaknesses or are they only saying the right things? Uh, so, so I think that conversation with the, the founder or the founder team is quite important. And we have some that are very conscious and they're very open and, and they, I think they dare to be uh, uh, vulnerable in a way. I mean, to be sort of sensitive that they're not, uh, they don't have the, all, uh, all the answers. And some are the opposite. They, are, they might come across as they know everything and maybe that's not uh, the ones that we want to work with. What's the toughest questions you get from the companies you interact with? Do they ask some difficult questions? Oh yeah, certainly. Um, well, I mean, some of the difficult questions could be because all companies they have, they have a. Everybody is convinced that they have something special, obviously, because that's you know. But then, it's also um, uh, it's also important to to have a discussion. What is really special, and what is what is generic stuff? Because in most cases, there's maybe a. I don't know, 30% of what people do is very special. I mean, something you need to really understand is different tech, is special tech or is something. And then the rest of it is pretty generic. It's about organization, it's about structure, it's about sales and blah, blah. And then, of course, trying to understand how and, and meeting the, what, what can I actually contribute with? Because if I'm not a tech person that, that, uh, that knows the tech that you're in, how can I help you? So, so I guess that conversation about how we can help and assist and work and lift the case, despite the fact that we're not experts in what they do, that is probably sometimes the difficult one. Uh, I believe in it uh, because I do believe there's a lot of um, inter sort of uh, learnings, but I think sometimes as a, as a first time found, founder, uh, maybe it's not something that is obvious, that there is a lot of learning out there that you can just take in and then you can allow yourself to play with the special part so so that conversation i think sometimes is um can be challenging to to get across definitely there's a saying in investing that you know everybody has has their blind spots do you have do you do you know which blind spots you have as an investor uh-huh. <laughs> um i i maybe it, uh, i can i can i can engage myself very early so I, i'm i'm uh, I'm quite optimist, a uh, little bit FOMO sometimes, and and but I'm quite a pragmatic optimist. So maybe I can I can get very engaged uh, early, which obviously then the blind spot could be that I, I need to be sort of critical to myself and and to what what could be challenges, uh, not to be carried away. The the positive side of that, of course, is that if you have of we have other people on the team, so we balance each other, and and that's part of what the team should be. That somebody can, you know, dare to sort of push it a bit out, and then somebody can dare to sort of hold hold uh, hold back and, and and try to be uh, critical, and and that's why I'm I'm so happy with the team that we have that we balance each other. Um, 
how conscious have you been about creating the right culture? Because you've been a part of so many different organizations, I guess, so you've seen a lot of different strategies in terms of culture. So well, how would you summarize the culture you're trying to, to build in Sandwater? How would you characterize it? Yeah, it's a tough question because then you're putting me on the spot here. Um, in terms of, I, I, first of all, I, I guess it, it's a bit of a, and, and several of the people on our team have have been around for a while. I mean, we lived uh, through a few things. So so maybe on average, we're quite an experienced team, which means a good thing with that is people have seen what works and what doesn't work. So you can sort of be a bit relaxed on that. And of course, the the, the flip side is that people have very, you know, have uh, made their self-experiences that you are sort of strong uh, personalities. But I think most of all, uh, we're trying to create a very, pragmatic, relaxed, uh, hierarchy-free uh, setup where we share. We are not into titles or, or sort of um, positions or things like that. And, and of course, as a small team of five, it's easy. Uh, but it has to do with also trying to get that culture across to those we work with. So, um, you know, not having... Uh, I mean, we're, 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 we have principles, but we're not afraid of trading with principles. Uh, we're pragmatic. Uh, we don't have a lot of hang-ups, uh, hang-ups, and and we try also to be coming across as being. We want to be approachable and collaborative internally, but we also really want to have that come across outside. Yeah. So a little bit of that sort of, uh, um, um, you know, sort of uh, pay forward in a way, or sort of uh, give first, right? Because if you if you dare to give a bit uh, without necessarily asking back. I, I believe, and I've seen that many times, I believe you will get what you deserve in a way over time. So some of that thing uh, hopefully can be part of it. We, we, we've we had people asking as well, you know, you kind of say that it's it's so flat and everybody sort of, is that really, can it really be so? And, uh, and for instance, you know, very often in, in private equity, you have something called an investment committee where it's quite stringent with voting rights and who is for and against. We try not to do that. We try to get due decisions by discussing and, and making right decisions and, and doing it in a natural way, which I'm used to as a as a business yeah. sort of operator in my past. So so some of those things. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's early days. We've only yeah, done this for a year, but so uh, so far so good. How do you typically like to structure your work day or work week? How is like your working methods evolved? Because obviously you've been a leader in high pressure situations, but I don't know in this role if you're a bit more flexible in terms of how you sure. allocate your time, right? How's that evolved? Well, you know, that's quite interesting because uh, as we have been building up Sandwater, we are, it's kind of like skiing and then you're putting the poles in front of you, right? Because we are building up processes and ways to work and cooperate as we are developing. Um, and that has to do with sort of dividing uh, responsibilities uh, between the team, making the right processes, not too stringent, not too light. So in a way, uh, we, are, uh, we are, you know, creating a bit of a work structure with sort of team meetings and ever. But most of the work is quite uh, free and free in the sense that it's flexible which is both um, a blessing and a curse, right? Because it's a blessing in the sense that you can, I can do meetings in the morning, I can go to, the wor- uh, go to work and then I can do meetings in the afternoon somewhere else and it's all fine. Um, but we do need to have a minimum uh, interaction space. So we try to, we try to have uh, a bit of structure 
but we have a lot of uh, distributed freedom. But once it becomes something, if there's an investment we're looking at, once it becomes something that then we need to put into process. So there's a lot of freedom initially. I'm, I'm generally a bit of a, my wife says that I'm, uh, she can't understand how I can sort of manage a lot of people because I'm, I'm can be quite disorganized, but it's, it's an, it's an organization in my head, uh, despite of that. So it's a little bit of a, uh, macro organized and micro disorganized. Um, and also I'm quite impulsive, uh, and I'm happy and, and, you know, quite often get jump on things. But as I said, we have, um, some more structured people on my team, uh, luckily. Uh, and, and I think again, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of complementary setups because I, I don't believe that you can be good if you're four or five that are yeah. coming from the same, you need to have different, you know, things. So, um, so I, I'm more on the uh, on the less structured guy, but I I also know that uh, that uh, if you if you're good at uh, giving people a lot of uh, flexibility and freedom and and people get trust and then people deliver. Yeah. How, how does your learning process look like? Because obviously you are going to evaluate so many cases all the time. You know, tech comes and goes, trends comes and goes, and you always need to dive into certain topics. Do you have a framework on how you sort of self-improve all the time that you can truly understand different businesses? Or is it about interacting with smart people, discussing? Or do you say that, okay, I need focus time to really dive for myself to really understand this product? I, I, I think I've, I've uh, come to the realization that that I can, I can try to look at so certain patterns. And when it comes to tech, of course, there are very tech-specific things that I, I don't, I can spend time, but I don't understand. But I can maybe ask some of the right questions. But then we need to have people with us. We, luckily, we have a PhD in physics on our team. And often he end up sort of looking at the more complicated stuff. But then, of course, we need to be good at sort of realizing quickly where does our sort of depth stop? And how do we bring in people that can help us? But uh, but I, I think it's 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 more about trying to ask the right questions and and maybe and maybe filter quite early what the key questions are, mm. and then after that it's about sort of handing it over to or having people that can help you go in the necessary depth. Uh, so I think it's more about pattern recognition, trying to ask questions that uh, give you um, an indication of where the opportunities and the, and the red flags are. And then work from that, go deeper into it after you've gotten that sort of first map uh, of the terrain, if you will. Interesting. If you're forecasting a bit ahead, what makes you most exciting about the next period come up right now? Is it starting to fully invest in cases? Is that sort of the, the most exciting stuff right now? Well, if I can, if I can call it exciting uh, and uh, challenging uh, and maybe sort of... Uh, uh, uncertainty at the same time. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, obviously getting Sandwood up to sort of level one with the fund, getting that we're hiring a couple of for a couple of new people now, so it'll be seven soon, is obviously to get in mode of sort of regular uh, uh, investments. But then, of course, also realizing that it's quite a challenging outlook. Uh, where is the market going? How do you how do you how do you uh, pace yourself in investing? Because I think it's a very good time to be investing in in the next couple of years. At the same time, it's challenging because there's so much uncertainty. Uh, how do you pace? But at the same time, don't be too um, conservative because then you will lose some opportunities. 
but of course, it's working out and, and establishing Sandwater um, in the Nordic venture scene. Uh, getting uh, obviously you're only as good as your, your next or your last game so you need to sort of get some good new companies in your portfolio and also be in a position to 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 uh, to get the right deal flow and, and so on so it's all about for us Sandwater has gone through a couple of growth uh, steps already and now is the next sort of step sort of establishing getting a business going getting a portfolio showing that you can deliver with the new team uh, and then getting into all the stuff. I mean, there's so m- many interesting topics we could talk about. I could stay here with, with you for a week, <laughs> but 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 getting into that as well and 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 finding those uh, hopefully those um, really really good opportunities to work with. What is your best tactic to have some freedom and get away from work? Do you have any things, activities that completely takes you away? I mean, before we got on air, we talked a bit about uh, the, the the nature, of course. Do you have any activities you do to try to take some time? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I I have too many. That's the problem. <laughs> so I I don't get to do as many as I'd like. But I, I I'm generally quite. A, I I do a lot of hunting, um, which is sort of taking my dog and and it's mostly for the social part and and getting out uh, but also um kayaking and mountain biking and and randonne skiing and stuff like that so i i think uh again i i have um I, sh- I guess i have uh not enough time to do what i would like to do so i'm always sort of bad conscious but but at the same time it's the 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 luxury of of doing and maybe having lived for a while is also that I understand more and more how I protect myself and how I can sort of play all the work and then still have fine time to do other things. And that's obviously partly also with that you, you're getting smarter in how you, you know, uh, prioritize. Um, but uh, I'm, I guess I'm like anybody else. I'm always I'm with a bad conscience of things that I should have done instead of spending time in the office or something. But, um, yeah, just a couple of more questions left. We usually ask our guests about uh, their favorite books. Do you have any that comes to mind that you've read that have been very influential to your thinking? Or um, I'm quite fond of um, of sort of um, historical uh, dramas, and that also gives you a sense of um, of understanding what happened at the time. I, I one of the books that I read. It's not that it's it's sort of, uh, but, but it sticks with me. Is 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 a book. It's called Pillars of the Earth. It was uh, written by um, uh, by um, uh, um, oh, it slips me at the time, but it will come to me. Yeah. But um, Ken Follett, and and the thing was that that you you there's a it's about a mason, a guy who built churches back in the 1100s uh, in the UK. And and you get a you start with a very micro and and the story is there, but you understand that he's just piece a piece of a big big evolution that was happening around. It was a very pivoting point. But those sort of understanding, you know, the dynamics and and how small pieces and large pieces work together, and then it actually it's um, it's a way of of sort of understanding a whole period of time and and. Uh, and that is a book that I still, you know, it's 20 years ago, 25 years ago since I read it. Uh, and I, I read a book at the, of the same guy recently, and that was about something uh, as dramatic as the Third World War and, and the threat of uh, atomic uh, nuclear war, which, again, putting it into a context of what's happening today. So this sort of understanding history by the, the little man's story and how that sort of plays together, I, I think is uh, something that probably is the first thing that comes to mind. 
That's a very original answer as well because nobody has brought that up. So I think people should definitely check that out. So just a final questions, uh, question. We have so many listeners in their 20s and their 30s who are sort of starting their career, right? And you touched upon a lot of lessons already, but what are you, is your general advice for people you meet in finance who want to work with investing, etc.? Do you tell them any specific advice on how to get ahead or is it about taking the opportunities you're given and sort of the, the route will follow thereafter? You can't really plan too much. I, I think you can't really plan too much. I, I do believe. I think those old, the old thinking that maybe was more earlier when you had a career plan. I mean, forget about that. I think it's obviously important, and I do understand that if you come out of school, that it's really important to get into cer- certain, you know, companies or jobs or something that creates a base for you, so you can, and that's a, uh, super important. But at the same time, I think also be true in a way to also something that gives you real you know in a way satisfaction and I, again i i'm very conscious that it's easy for me to say that you know have lived for a while whereas it's tougher when you're there making tough choices but but make sure that you don't work too much against the principles that you have make sure that you over time are also thinking about the purpose what do you want to do with this thing and don't be afraid to change it's and don't be afraid to try things and not uh, necessarily know what how the outcome is going to be so so that's general i i think generally as an employer people value a lot obviously that you have done good in school and you pick the right employer but value that you are also trying to do things that are a little bit out of the ordinary that you are willing uh, willing to try because a lot of people appreciate that that you have that in you um so and uh, and and eventually you 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 have to uh you have to enjoy what you do. So I, I would say, you know, follow your heart a bit more than the head if you can. Mm. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, stay in there. Perfect, perfect ending, Tom Evan. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Well, thanks so much. for Thanks for having me. If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called The Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vonheim. See you next time.